No event of any significance in the world, be it terrorist attack, death of a celebrity, or flu pandemic takes place without generating a flutter of conspiracy theories. We all know at least one person who believes the 9-11 attacks were orchestrated by the American government, that the moon landings were faked, you're a coward and a liar and a thief, or that vaccines cause autism and the pharmaceutical companies are trying to hide it. Vaccines cause autism? Well, I have one million results that say they don't, and one result that says they do. I knew it. Just because I have it doesn't mean it's true! As unpleasant and potentially dangerous a belief in one or more of these conspiracies can be, they do for the most part come from a very natural human desire to explain what appears to be unexplainable. However, there are times where an event is so well documented, that artifacts are so well preserved, that an understanding of the event doesn't take specialised skill or knowledge, that a belief in a certain conspiracy comes from a very different place. Some people believe in conspiracy theories because it gives them a sense of comfort and security. You see, they're much prefer to live in a world where everything is orchestrated by shadowy figures than the chaotic world we live in, because then at least there's some form of control. Other people like the sense of power it gives them, after all, they are the ones who have this privileged knowledge, and this sense of power they might not be getting in their real life. However, there are certain conspiracy theories that come from a much darker place, where people bend reality to back up and justify their dislike and even hatred towards a certain group of people. And there is no better example than those who distort or flat out deny the facts of the Holocaust. And on that note, I would like to introduce you to Gerald Frederick Tobin. This video offers a critical look at that part of World War II history called the Holocaust. In particular, of the alleged mass gassings of prisoners in German concentration camps. Tobin is a German-born Australian citizen who was the director and founder of the Adelaide Institute, which is considered to be a Holocaust-denying group. However, Tobin and his associates say that they are not Holocaust denialists because, I'm quoting here, you cannot deny that which never happened, and they prefer the term revisionists. The activity of the Institute has been on the decline since the mid-90s, however, they still maintain an active website. Tobin is also quite active, despite no longer being head of the Institute. This was after he was incarcerated after failing to remove material from the Institute's website that vilified Jewish people. Frederick Tobin went into court this morning prepared to go to jail. I see it as going to college. I'll, I'll learn a few things in there. He's been convicted on 24 counts of contempt for blatantly breaching long-standing federal court orders that banned him from publishing offensive material about Jews and the Holocaust on his website. But even at his sentencing today, he was making few apologies. Why should I apologise to the Jewish people? Ask, tell me. In his sentencing remarks, Justice Lander described Tobin's conduct as a calculated intention to disobey orders of the court. He handed down a three-month jail term and ordered Tobin to pay almost $230,000 in legal costs. In 2006, Tobin attended the International Conference to review the global vision of the Holocaust in Iran. The conference, apparently, was neither to deny or prove the Holocaust, but to provide an appropriate scientific atmosphere for scholars to offer their opinion in freedom about a historical issue. Do you want to see what passes for a scholar at this conference? 
Well, luckily for us, Tobin released a video in 2004, which was shot back in 1997, where he and an unknown Australian narrator talk about the Holocaust and what they think actually happened. In the past 10 years, we have visited most of the still existing concentration camps in Europe, including Auschwitz, Bengbesen, Buchenwald, Dachau, Oranienburg, Sachsenhausen and Neuengamme. We have gathered and studied the official information brochures and archives in the museums of these camps. We have interviewed cremation experts, chemists, engineers and some survivors of these camps. Dr. Frederick Tobin of the Adelaide-based Adelaide Institute has been studying the so-called Jewish Holocaust for more than 30 years. In April 1997, Dr. Tobin travelled to Poland to visit the most notorious of all World War II concentration camps, Auschwitz. Eyewitness testimonies, books and movies, ignoring the physical evidence, have all added to the legend of this most infamous camp. We say legend because the stories told by the books, movies and eyewitnesses have all been based on cruel wartime propaganda. And how many of you watching this video right now have ever gone to the trouble to find out if this propaganda is anywhere near true? This video is the culmination of many years intensive study of the actual facts, the still existing evidence and Dr. Tobin's visit to Auschwitz. All we ask of you is to listen to the evidence and judge for yourself. The video is called Banned in Europe, Exposing the Holocaust Hoax Zionist World War II Lies. At least, that's what I thought the name of the video was. I later found out that the name for the uh, documentary, I, it really doesn't feel right calling it that, is Judea Declares War on Germany. We named this video Judea Declares War on Germany because the historical facts show it was international Zionism that wanted to destroy Germany and Hitler, and not the other way around. The documentary is just over an hour long and mostly consists of video clips from Tobin's visits to Auschwitz and Dachau as an unknown Australian narrates over the top of it. The documentary takes its name from the title of an article published in the British newspaper The Daily Express, which is on the subject of the anti-Nazi boycott of 1933, where German products were boycotted in protest to the treatment of the Jews by the German government. New York, 100,000 parade in great protest against Hitler's treatment of the Jews in Germany. And at their head was the World War Commander of the 27th Division, Major General Orion. The huge throng marched for hours through downtown New York to show their disapproval of the Nazi policies which affected their race. The human torrent poured into Battery Park, where they heard their leaders attack religious intolerance in Germany as a challenge to civilization. But this is not the story you'll hear in this ugh, documentary. According to the documentary, the boycott came before any hostilities towards the Jews by the Nazi government, and not the other way around. This is not the first, nor is it the last time that Tobin gets the timing of events wrong. The entire documentary is littered with temporal mistakes that are quite clearly designed to mislead the viewer. One of the first examples of such a mistake is when the documentary tries to justify Germany's invasion of Poland. But it was a full-scale slaughter of German citizens in 1939 when Polish militia murdered five and a half thousand German men, women and children in the village of Bromberg that forced Hitler to send in his troops to protect his citizens and which gave France and Great Britain the excuse to declare full-out war against Germany. 
Like with the title of the documentary, Judea Declares War on Germany, Tobin is trying to boil down a rather complicated historical event to a simple soundbite. This time that Hitler had no choice and he had to invade to protect his people from the Polish authorities who were organising and or tolerating violent ethnic cleansing of the Germans living there. The event which Tobin believes catalyzed the invasion of Poland happened between the 3rd and 4th of September 1939 in the city of Bomberg. There, a large number of the ethnic German population were killed by the Polish in what now is known as Bloody Sunday. The term Bloody Sunday was created and supported by Nazi propaganda officials, who wanted to exploit the event to try and gain support for Germans' invasion of Poland. Goebbels' propaganda ministry estimated that just under 5.8 thousand Germans had been killed during Bloody Sunday, but later increased their estimate to 58,000 people who had been killed. Now, this number was published in the book Polish Atrocities Against the German Minority in Poland, which convinced more Germans for the invasion of Poland and generated more hatred towards the Poles. Tobin and this Australian narrator, seemingly unaware, are using the same Nazi propaganda to try and justify Germany's invasion. They even go a step further and promote the book Polish Atrocities Against the German Minority in Poland. The German Foreign Office even bought out a book entitled Documented Polish Atrocities, showing dozens of graphic photographs of the victims. This book has since been removed from sale. For Tobin's story to work, you have to ignore the fact that Germany was already expanding at this point. In 1938, they annexed Austria, and then they occupied Czechoslovakia, all without igniting hostilities with the major powers. Hitler was hoping to do the same with Poland, but was worried that the USSR would come to Poland's aid, and therefore, on August 23, 1939, signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. Hitler then gave orders for the invasion of Poland to take place on August 26, but the day before delayed the attack after he learned that Britain had signed a new treaty with Poland, promising them military support should they be attacked. In response, the Nazis staged false attacks on themselves to create the appearance of Polish aggression against Germany. This false flag, and yes, it was a false flag, Nazi project was even given a name. It was called Operation Himmler after its originator, Heinrich Himmler. It was hoped that this would be seen as provocation for invading Poland and at the same time to derail or obstruct Britain's involvement. Regarding Bloody Sunday, there is still some debate on what actually happened, but the general consensus is that Polish soldiers were attacked by the German minority living there, who then retaliated, killing many ethnic Germans and not just those attacking them. There is still some discussion on the actual number of ethnic Germans who died. At the time, the War Crimes Bureau dealing with this question reported that there were approximately about 1,000 people they could name who died there, and between 3,500 and 5,000 people who they couldn't name who died there. But they did note, however, that it was not possible to determine at what level these numbers overlapped. However, there are some today who put the number actually to be much lower, around about the 300 to 400 mark. But why would the German minority attack the Polish soldiers? Months prior to the 1939 invasion of Poland, thousands of Polish ethnic Germans, both inside and outside Poland, were being secretly prepared for guerrilla warfare and sabotage operations by the German military intelligence service. 
The purpose of these operations was to provoke a anti-ethnic German reprisals that could also be claimed as provocations by Berlin. In other words, Hitler and the higher-ups knew that the people they trained to sabotage various things in Poland were outgunned, and they were relying on this because they were hoping that these people would get killed, and that could work in their favour. But all of this is irrelevant because Bloody Sunday took place between the 3rd and 4th of September 1939. The invasion of Poland started on the 1st of September 1939. Now unless Hitler was some kind of clairvoyant or time traveller, Tobin's story completely falls apart. It's quite clear, even at this very early stage in the documentary, we haven't even got past the 15 minute mark yet and I've missed out quite a lot so far, that Tobin is trying to rewrite history and not only cast a shadow on the events of the Holocaust, but also expunge Nazi Germany of any wrongdoing. I mean, for example, he talks about Bloody Sunday, but never mentions what happened after. When a number of Polish civilians were indiscriminately executed by the German military in retaliation. As I've already mentioned, Tobin is a massive fan of warping time and space to expunge Nazi Germany of any wrongdoings during the war or beforehand, and he continues this trend. This time he says that their hand was forced when it comes to putting Jewish people in concentration camps, that they had no choice, they had to do it, and Jewish people are to blame for that. The Germans had since recognized they'd been stabbed in the back by German Zionists, and they resented this. So they were only too happy when Hitler came up with his final solution to the Jewish problem, which was an agreement reached with German Zionist groups to have four million European Jews either emigrate or be deported to the island of Madagascar. Tobin begins to talk about the Madagascar plan, which was a proposal by the Nazi German government to relocate the Jewish population of Europe to the island of Madagascar. He states that international Zionists organised a boycott against Germany in response to the deportation, forcing them not only to stop but to bring people back and thus condemning them to the concentration camps. The international Zionists, fearing their influence in Europe was dwindling fast, met in Amsterdam in 1933 and demanded Hitler stop the deportations immediately and take all Jews back. When Hitler defied their demands, the international Zionists represented by Mr. Samuel Untermeyer then declared worldwide war and boycott on Germany. Hoping to maintain some form of power in Europe, the international Zionists managed to sabotage and stop the immigration of many thousands of Jews, thereby condemning these fellow Jews to imprisonment in concentration camps. The only problem here is that the Madagascar plan was proposed in June of 1940, seven years after the start of the 1933 anti-Nazi boycott and ten months into the war. Let's also not forget that Madagascar during the time of the boycott was a French colony which Germany had no jurisdiction over. It was only after the fall of France that this became an option, however because of the British naval blockade it was not viable and eventually shelved in 1942 with the commencement of the final solution. So I ask you, how can a pre-war Germany send millions of Jews to an island they had no control over? They couldn't, and they didn't, Tobin. After all, the Jews were engaged in a self-declared war against Germany, and this made them enemies within their own country. 
Here, quite clearly, Tobin is trying to vilify the Jewish people and turn them into moustache-twirling villains by completely ignoring why the worldwide organised economic boycott against German goods took place. It was in response to the anti-Semitic policies against Jewish people and not some international Zionists that wanted to destroy Germany and Hitler, as Tobin stated. It also ignores the fact that not every Jewish person supported the boycott. The Central Jewish Association of Germany believed that the Nazi government was not deliberately provoking anti-Semitic programs, and actually fought against the boycott. Later in the documentary, the unknown narrator basically repeats back exactly what Tobin has said before adding his own two cents. Hitler hit back by ordering Jews to identify themselves as enemies of the Reich by wearing the yellow star. When Hitler marched into Poland to stop the atrocities, Britain and France declared war, and the Jews, who had also openly declared war on Germany, were interred in camps, as any nation would do to any enemy. And what about the homosexuals? Did they declare war on Germany? Should they have been incarcerated like any nation would do to their enemy? What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? What about the pacifists? What about the mentally ill? The first concentration camps were erected immediately after Hitler became Chancellor, and were used to house so-called enemies of the state. Most prisoners in the early concentration camps were German communists, socialists, social democrats, Romani, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, and people accused of socially deviant behaviour. It was not until Germany's annexation of Austria in 1938 that they started to imprison Jewish people in concentration camps. If these people really were enemies, as Tobin and this Australian narrator are saying, why did they wait five years to incarcerate them? Next, the documentary goes a little bit off course when it starts talking about an article that was published in American Hebrew called The Crucifixion of the Jews Must Stop. In the article, the author refers to the poor conditions of the European Jews after World War I as a potential holocaust and asserts that six million Jewish men and women are starving across the seas. What makes this interesting is that it was published in 1919, 14 years before Hitler rose to power. Now, something I want to note here is that this part in the documentary is called How Many Times Can Six Million People Die in a Holocaust? On the 31st of October 1919, more than 14 years before Hitler came on the scene, the former governor of New York, Mr. Martin Glynn, wrote an article for the American Hebrew magazine entitled The Crucifixion of Jews Must Stop. Six times in the article, Mr. Glynn bemoaned the six million Jewish men, women and children that were dying in a holocaust. But as this was 20 years before the Second World War even started, nobody can blame this holocaust on Hitler. The documentary highlights everywhere in the article it says holocaust and six million, as if to say, aha, aha, do you see? Do you see? But what are we meant to see apart from an interesting coincidence? We have more than one article talking about this subject, and there you have a wide range of numbers. Some say 5 million, a couple say 3 million. What, what, are, we meant to, what are we meant to get from that? Hey, Tobin? Are we really meant to believe that the Jewish population came together to say, hey, you know what, we're going to fake a genocide. We're going to attempt it in 1919. Oh, whoops, it didn't really work. Let, you know what, let's try it again two decades later. Is, is that what this documentary is actually implying? Because it never says it. It just points it out and expects you, the viewer, to connect the dots. This is such a ridiculous point to bring forward because of the small fact that not everyone calls the Holocaust the Holocaust. 
And some people use it more broadly to include the millions of people who died at these camps who weren't Jewish. Let's not forget about the 3.3 to 3.5 million Soviet prisoners of war who died in these camps, which brings the total up to a hell of a lot more than 6 million. Let's talk about the word Holocaust. It means burnt sacrifice offered to God, which is why some people think it's inappropriate to use to describe, well, the Holocaust. However, the term Holocaust is here to stay and has become a synonym for genocide. Even before the Second World War, it was being used in this way. For example, when Winston Churchill used it to describe the Armenian Genocide, or like how Martin Glynn, I think his name is, the author of The Crucifixions of the Jews Must Stop, used it in his article. An interesting and surprising fact about the Holocaust is that we don't actually have a order from Hitler, a signed order from Hitler, actually telling people to kill X amount of Jews. Now, there are many reasons for this. The first reason is that the Nazi regime were very secretive about what they were doing. They didn't want to enrage the people they were fighting, and they didn't want to enrage their fellow Germans, so they kept this on the down low. The second reason is when the Germans were retreating, they actually went to great effort to destroy evidence that showed, well, basically what they were doing. And the third reason is that there isn't one final solution. These things evolved over time. And although there were different methods, different things going on, they all had one thing, their one goal in mind, which was to exterminate the Jewish population under Germany's control. This is a cornerstone of the revisionist movement, and it was only a matter of time before this subject was brought up in the documentary. However, this documentary goes a little bit further and says not only do we not have any written evidence from Hitler, but also the little bit of paper evidence, the paper trail that we do have, is fake. When Germany was defeated in 1945, the Allies captured over 3,000 tons of written material. But nowhere in this material did any researcher find any orders or plans from the Nazi hierarchy to kill Jews. At the Nuremberg trials, the only evidence presented to the courts as proof that such a plan existed were the so-called Wannsee Protocols. Wannsee is a beautiful wooded suburb of Berlin and it is claimed that on the 20th of January 1942, a group of top Nazi officials under the leadership of SS Obergruppenführer Reinhard Heydrich met in a large villa to discuss the final solution of the Jewish question. The prosecution alleged the final solution alluded to a plan devised by the Nazi leadership to eliminate as many European Jews as they could get their hands on. Copies of these protocols are on show in various museums in the world, but only native Germans reading them would notice that whoever wrote these protocols had very little understanding of German grammar or of secretarial skills. The so-called Wannsee protocols are badly done fakes. Of course, after the war, the Allies had full access to all official Nazi stamps, typewriters, letterheads, and everything needed to create fake documents that could have been better than originals. But in the case of the Wannsee Protocols, the faking was done so badly that today they would be laughed out of court. So the only document that was ever presented to the world as proof of an official Nazi murder plan is a document made by an amateur crook. There never was an official Nazi plan to destroy the chosen race. If you say you can't trust the authenticity of the Wannsee Protocols because after the war the Allies had access to stamps, typewriters and letterheads, then what documents can you trust? The answer should be, you can't trust any of them. At least that's the answer this Holocaust denialist should be given. But he doesn't do that. 
Instead, this skepticism is only put towards things that don't back up his warped views of the Holocaust. Anything that he thinks can be used to back him up, that's fine, that's naturally authentic. But this, this one document that doesn't back him up, it's a fake. When the documentary says that there are grammatical errors in the protocol, this might have something to do with the fact that the author of them, a Adolf Eichmann, was from Austria. And thus, from a linguistic point of view, his phrasings and expressions here are typical of someone from a Austrian-German background, and evidence of Eichmann's authorship of the protocol, and not against it. It's quite clear from this, and by the way we're only 15 minutes into the film, this small section of this documentary that Tobin and the guy narrating this documentary don't care about historical accuracy. They want to bend facts and figures and events and times to fit their delusional narrative that Nazi Germany did nothing wrong. And it's so strange to watch because you know, you know that they know they're talking bullshit. And the reason they're doing this is so they can justify their bigotry towards a certain group of people. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of the video. I know this probably was a difficult one to watch. Now, I'm going to be back soon with a second part where I'm going to talk about, or well, basically how these guys think that no one died in the gas chambers and how they think no one was actually gassed. Um, yeah, it's mind-boggling. So you've got that to look forward to in a few weeks or a month or so. Right, so I'm going to go. All that's left for me to do is to thank the people who support me on Patreon. Honestly, you guys are awesome, and what with YouTube being a bit weird these days, you are helping this channel, and you're helping me produce this content, so I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Right, I'm going to go, and I will see you fantastic people on the internet soon. Goodbye.